last week and the week before were faith and sorrow and faith and desperation. We're getting to the good part. Can we skip to the good part already? You know, you're like, I come to church to get encouraged, and all y'all talk about is sorrow and desperation. Well, you got to start with the bad news because the good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad, right? And so we're getting to this place where we talk about redemption. Last week, we see Boaz letting Ruth glean or, or, or pick a, a harvest, a, a wheat berry and a barley berry off the perimeter of his field, which was something that, that a, a good man, a good field owner would do for those who were in need. And that's the kind of situation Ruth was in. And he not only let her glean from the field, but he actually provided protection for her. He said, don't let anything happen to that woman. And Naomi instructed then Ruth to visit Boaz at the threshing floor at the end of the harvest. And that's where we pick up today. And so in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So she, we're talking about Ruth here. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. Now, for some of you, that language might be tough. Because y'all don't want to be commanded by your mother-in-law to do anything, okay? And that just, it just, it feels weird hearing it even, you know what I mean? But this culture would have been a culture of honor, first off, right? They would have honored those generations that have gone before them. This culture had a, a, a context where the elder would have been close to the, to the uh, youth, right? Or, or that person who was younger, there would have been a trusting relationship where they did heed the wisdom of the generation that went before. And so this isn't some oppressive framework. This is, this is just honor, an order in a family. And in verse 7, we find Boaz is finished threshing on the threshing floor. That means he's, you know, gathered the grain out of the, out of the stalks, right, and, and done all the processing. And, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap grain. Now, uh, this is a picture of a man who's satisfied with a hard day's work, right, or maybe even a hard week's or a hard month's work, right? He's, he's finished the harvest. He has a drink or two, but he's not drunk. I don't want to accidentally give you the impression. We don't see any evidence that he would be doing anything that leads to impropriety. He wasn't beyond the limit. This is a man who was unwinding from some hard work, and here he finds himself satisfied and in bed. And that's where Ruth comes to him. Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. I would be too. <laughs> Think about it, you know? I mean, I got a baby in, in bed sometimes. She, she creeps into bed because, like, she's crying and Amy's trying to just, you know, yeah, we do a little co-sleeping. That's okay. It's not bad, right? And, and, but every now and then I'll turn over not realizing she's there and I wig out, you know, like, ah! And I imagine it was even worse than that. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, some people, I believe people with a bad lens through which they measure the scripture, a lot of progressive theologians would, would think of the Scripture this way because they can't help but think of the Scripture explicitly through this lens. Some people think that this is Ruth giving herself in an unholy manner. They think that everything's sexual. 
That's not what's happening here. This is not scandalous. Ruth is not being provocative. Reliable scholars would suggest that Ruth is showing to Boaz that she is available for marriage and she's willing to place herself at this, in this position of humility in the relationship and willing to come under this man's covering. Spread your wings over me. Spread your covering over me, your spiritual covering, your relational covering. This is not sex, okay? And you can see this, this tradition actually in traditional Hebrew weddings where a man would, would cover his bride in his, in his talit, his prayer shawl, and he would spread his wings of that prayer shawl over her. And, and as he covers her, it's an expression of a blessing, a spiritual blessing that's taking place at that time. That imagery, a lot of people believe, not only comes from here, but other examples like this in the Hebrew history. Let's jump back in verse 10. Boaz said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. This is an older guy. He's like, hey, this is nice. You're younger and you're, you're, I mean, in one sense, he's like, I'm sure she was beautiful and he appreciated that. But in another sense, she was showing honor. She wasn't looking for the, the next best thing and the, the most fit body and the, the brightest, most longevity in the future. She was looking for the right man. And here he happened to be a little bit older. And he says, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So, so she's got a reputation of being worthy. She's not got a reputation of being loose. That helps us remember that, that what she's doing here is, is coming out of a, a posture of worthiness. That's her character, right? And in verse 12, he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Now we're going to pause there. There's some more to that scripture, but we'll come back to that. I want to talk about what a redeemer is. Uh, the Hebrew term for redeemer, or more specifically, a kinsman redeemer, right? You know that, that language, my kinfolk, right? That's like people that are close to me, connected through blood, like family lines and stuff like that, right? This is a kinsman or kinfolk redeemer, right? And, and that person, uh, by definition, would have been someone who delivers or rescues or, or redeems a person's property or the person themselves wholly and completely. And they'd be a male relative who, according to Jewish law, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, who was in danger, or who was in need. He says, I am a redeemer. Let's look more closely at what is required of a redeemer because there are requirements of a kinsman redeemer. One, he must be near of kin, as we talked about. So, for instance, if a, if a brother or a family member were to pass away, the kinsman redeemer may be a younger brother or even an older brother that, that would have redeemed that widow and married her so that she would not have to be alone and, and without support. And so he would have brought that, that widow back to a place of security and ultimately legacy. Right? He must also be able to redeem. Like, he's not going to marry this woman if he's already married, so that might not be able, he might not be able, but also he'd have to have enough resources to provide the redemptive means. Like, for instance, like, like dough. You got to have money, right? Because you might have to buy that person's property back so the debt debtors or the collectors don't come and take that property. So, again, trying to bring security. So, you have to have the money to be able to redeem. Three, he must be willing to redeem. 
See, this, this speaks to obedience, but it also speaks to the motivation of the heart. Because like sometimes we just obey, but not because we want to. You know what I mean? Sometimes we just obey because we feel like we have to. Maybe we're rule followers. There is something about obedience that, that we need to consider. We should be obedient, right? He's, he's got to be obedient. But more deeply than that, he wants to delight in his obedience. He wants to delight in what he's being called to do. It's more than just following the letter of the law. It's living by the spirit of the law and enjoying that. This redeemer must be willing. And in verse 12, again, he says, it is true that I am a redeemer. And we believe, based on what we see thereafter, that he's not only near of kin, he's able to redeem, and he's willing to redeem. But he says, yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. So think about Ruth for just a moment, and even Naomi, because that, as a mother-in-law, if this man redeems Ruth, generally, Naomi benefits from that redemptive process, right? Well, they're work, walking through great sorrow. We talked about this. Like, it was a hard journey. They've, they've been, like, grieving the loss in their lives. They've been experiencing the lack, not having that stability in life. And they can smell redemption. It's right there. He's like, yeah, I'm a redeemer. Blessed are you, child. And he's indicating, I want to redeem you. But then he's like, uh-oh, there's a redeemer closer than I. There's somebody between me and you. And, and I think that's not uncommon for us when we're on our journey towards redemption and not just an immediate redemption and salvation, but God redeeming all of these parts of our lives where like, we can smell it, we can taste it, we see it, like it's there, it's right in front of us, and we want it, and we're reaching out for it, and then all of a sudden, what? A hurdle. Is that my, is it just my story? That's always part of my experience. And here's Ruth experiencing another hurdle. And I'll summarize this next large section of text where we see that though there was a hurdle, Boaz, the redeemer, well, he drives right through the hurdle. And he says, I'll fix this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and Boaz goes and meets with that closer relative, and he strikes up a deal. And the other redeemer declines to redeem Ruth and Naomi. It was too costly. It didn't make sense for him. And apparently he wasn't willing and, and so Boaz, he completes the redemption, and he pays the full price and redeems Ruth, and thereby also redeeming Naomi. And in verse 13, we'll pick up in chapter 4, where it says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And we see in the text that the Lord blesses them with a child. You can go read the details if you're more interested and the woman, in verse 14, the women that were there said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Ruth and Naomi are restored. They are nourished through the redeemer, Boaz. Skip down to verse 17 where it says the women of the neighborhood gave, talking about uh, Ruth, uh, her baby, uh, gave Ruth's baby a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you might be wondering, 
which David are we talking about? Why would the scripture take care to talk about this baby's lineage? Well, because it is that David that many of you may be thinking about. It is King David, the one through whom the tribe of Judah would descend ultimately all the way down to Christ, a king, a Messiah, who would be a redeemer. And, and so this redeemer wouldn't that would come from this bloodline wouldn't just redeem one person, a Ruth or a Naomi or, or even a family. He would offer redemption for all of humanity. Naomi and Ruth, yes, they were blessed through their redeemer, Boaz, but we are blessed through our redeemer, Jesus. Like Ruth and Naomi's redeemer, our redeemer is a restorer of life and a nourisher of our soul. And his name is Jesus and he's worthy of praise. I know some of you felt like standing up for just a moment. Like take a praise break. That was one of those moments. You could have took a praise break right there, like a little five-second praise break. You know, we could have done that. It was an appropriate moment. You missed it, though, so I'll keep moving. <laughs> Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And, and, and while Boaz is a model for what a redeemer looks like, Ruth becomes a model for what our posture, those who need to be redeemed, looks like. Like Ruth came to Boaz's feet, we are to come to the feet of Jesus. You know, a lot of us think about the cross of Christ, and we think about coming to the foot of the cross as Jesus hangs there. And so, yes, we're at his feet, and it's there where he delivers and rescues us out of our greatest trouble and our greatest danger, which is the sin that ensnares our lives. Jesus on the cross at Calvary redeemed us out of the hands of the enemy. He bought us back from death. He conquered the grave and he saves us as we trust in that finished and perfect work that he accomplished on the cross. But then there's Jesus who not only died on the cross, but was buried and rose again from the power of the grave by the Holy Spirit and now sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning with a scepter and a crown. The crown that Jesus wears is reflective of his kingship, of his lordship. And, and, and even as king, with all authority, with all power, he still gently, lovingly, with goodness in his being, nourishes our soul's deepest needs. Some of us struggle to, to believe Jesus entirely to surrender to Jesus entirely because we're like, yeah, I think I believe that, believe that he delivered and rescued me, but I don't quite feel nourished yet. And I just want to tell you that the more you stay at his feet, the more nourished you'll be. The appropriate response from Ruth was to stay at Boaz's feet. The appropriate response for us is to do the same, to stay at Jesus' feet, to surrender in worship. And yes, it's an intimate place to be. And for you men out there, you're listening, you're like, hold up, playa. I ain't no Ruth. I don't know who you talk. I got to listen to my voice. I'm a man. I don't lay at no man's feet. <laughs> we struggle with this intimate idea of coming to the feet of Jesus because we don't actually, in many senses, know how to be vulnerable because of our misinterpretation of what it means to be a man. So we're emotionally unavailable and unable to be intimate not only with our spouses, not only with our children, not only with one another as men, but we're sometimes even unable to be intimate with God himself because we don't know how to be at his feet. And I'm not knocking you. Don't get me wrong. I'm not beating you up, but you need to hear that. And so we are called to be like Ruth 
and come to the feet of Jesus and seek cover under his shelter. As a matter of fact, like Ruth found shelter under Boaz's covering, we find shelter under the cover of the Almighty. Jesus, the Almighty, is all-powerful, and it's under his cover, under his authority, under his protection, where we surrender, where we bow our hearts and our, our minds and our lives, and we say, Jesus, spread your wings over me and give me covering. I'm destitute without you. I'm desperate without you. I have sorrow so deeply in my heart, that without you, I have nothing. Like that, that's got to be the cry of our heart. In Psalm 91, we see that, that the psalmist had a similar cry in his heart. It says in the first verse that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So he's first making a theological statement. He's just saying, I believe this. But then he shows his heart and he says, this is the cry of my heart. And he says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. You know, I have a habit of building my own refuges and my own fortresses. If it was up to me, my wife would let me spend every dollar I got on fortifying our home. I'd, I'd have all the best locks and, and all kinds of crazy things going on. Y'all don't even want to know. I love that kind of stuff. I'm all up in that. And, and so many times I find myself realizing, wow, I put too much stock in fortifying my own life instead of trusting God as my fortress. And the question becomes, do I trust Jesus to redeem my life? Do you trust Jesus to redeem your life? Now remember the requirements of what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. Jesus, like Boaz, must be near of kin. Well, you know what the word says about him? It's a little confusing at times. If you understand this theology, it makes a lot more sense. But the word is plain and clear about this. Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers. Wow. Yeah, he's near of kin. Remember, he must be able to redeem. Well, does Jesus have money? Well, yeah, he owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills or the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He owns all that is in, on the earth, but he doesn't need money to redeem you. The thing that he redeems you with is more greatly valued, has greater wealth than anything in all the world combined. And anything in the cosmos combined, the blood of Jesus is more valuable and more powerful. And he redeems you through that payment, through that shed blood. He is also willing to redeem. He's not just being obedient to God, though he was. He humbled himself obediently unto death. He's not just obedient, though. He desired to accomplish this work for you. He willingly, not begrudgingly, willingly laid down his life on the cross. And there on that cross, after being abused and tormented, carrying the weight of your sin and my sin, having his flesh torn from his body, people mocking him, even those whom he went on the cross for, standing there, not saying a word, not standing up for him while the accuser accused and like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent. He willingly gave up his life, and he uttered his last breath, and he says, it is finished. Do you know what was finished? The redemptive process. The contract or covenant had been fulfilled. Boaz fulfilled the covenant with Ruth. Jesus fulfills the covenant with you. It's finished. It's already done. He's paid for it. We're not in that place where Ruth is wondering, oh no, what's going to happen next? 
we have hope and confidence knowing it's already done. And some of you, if you're anything like I was at one time in my journey, I mean, I've wrestled with this not too poorly. I had a pretty strong revelation of God's grace upon salvation. But still, you wonder at times, like, how could he do that for me? So wicked. Damn, I keep running back to the same things. I keep, my mind just keeps going into those places that dishonor God. And I, I, I want what he says he has for me, but I, I keep retreating to other things. And, and you're like, man, this, this surely can't be for me. I'm, I'm not redeemable. The promises of God must not, it, yeah, maybe for you, maybe for you, I'm too far gone. Well, he did it for Ruth, who was a pagan Moabite. She was the people that God said, don't ever engage with, ever. They are a cursed people. Yet God, in his great mercy and his grace, plucks this woman out of cursing and places her under his blessing because she was redeemable. And no matter how far gone you are, whether you live in Moab or whatever it is that you're going through or whatever it is that you have in your mind or your heart, you are not outside of the reach of God's redemption and his love and his mercy. And he's inviting you, even the most broken version of you, the most sinful version of you, to enjoy his promise. But there is something that he's calling you to. Now, before I get there, I want to just meditate on this for another moment because this is amazing. This is amazing that Jesus would redeem somebody out of Moab, that he redeemed them out of that, that place of, of, of wickedness and, and that he would say that person still has worth, that person still has value and I still have a plan for them. It's amazing. And he doesn't just redeem like, like just a part of us. Jesus redeems every part of our lives. He'll redeem your past. Ruth, her past was in Moab. And you still have maybe a past in Moab and maybe even one foot in Moab. Or maybe you're still impacted by the effects of what Moab did in your life. You have disappointment, you have trauma, you have sorrow. And I know it's true, and I don't talk to all of you, but I talk to enough of you to know that every, so many people are dealing with these things. And, and, and it's not just because of things you've done. It's things that have been done to you. But it's your past, it's out of your control, but it's your past. And then there's some things that are in your control, your bad decisions and your, your, your pursuit of worldliness and, and your sin that you maybe at times choose to remain lost in. Even that, God redeems your past. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. At one time in the past, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off in the past have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus can restore every part of your life. He paid for all the things, all of them, everything that you've ever done, he paid for. So Jesus not only redeems your past, Jesus redeems your present. That thing that you're wrestling through right now, that moment like Ruth had where, where you feel like the redemption hasn't come and you're just waiting, you feel like, like that part of your life hasn't yet been restored and you're sitting there like, what's going on? Where are you at, God? Well, we all live there in the present, and so it's hard not to focus on that. I understand why you would focus on that. 
I focus on my present as well. And sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes I'm just wrecked in my soul due to whatever. Sometimes, sometimes we're just begging God to move powerfully in a, in a certain way that would be evidence that he's, he's doing something in our lives. And, and, you know, sometimes we think that what redeeming our present looks like is that he would change our circumstances. So we're like, he obviously hasn't redeemed my present if my circumstances haven't changed. I've, I've felt that way. But Jesus is less interested in redeeming your circumstances, though he'll do that at times according to his will, and more interested in re- redeeming your faith and your hope in the midst of whatever circumstance. He'll redeem your present and call you to live differently in the present despite your circumstances by guaranteeing your future. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Your future is guaranteed and we're stuck here in the present. And yes, it's hard. Yes, that broken relationship is really difficult. It's almost impossible. I understand your temptation to run. Yes, that job situation is borderline oppressive and you're like, I really shouldn't be here. And I I know you're imagining all kinds of wonderful things that could happen in this life. Jesus may redeem that. He may change those things, but more interesting, more more so is he interested in changing your view of him in the midst of those hard places. And that guarantee of our future becomes not only our lens for the present, but it becomes a window to what's coming. Jesus redeems your future. I know it's hard for some to imagine a bright future when our present and our past may feel so dark. You know, you're just sitting there in your room at the end of your bed and you're screaming out and you're weeping over the loss, over the the fear, over the trespass, over the rejection, over the violation. You're, 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 You're sitting there in a dark room and you can't imagine anything but the moment you're in. You can't imagine a brighter future. But God's word, his promises are forever for you. His promises are yes and amen. And in the midst of our suffering, we can forget that at times. But Peter writes to a suffering church in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This promise of restoration, this promise that your salvation is confirmed, that your soul will be strengthened, that your foundations will be established. This promise is eternal. It's unwavering. It's unchanging. It's as good as it was the day he died on the cross. And it will never not be good for you. And and his instruction to the church that is suffering, Peter, is to him 
be the dominion forever and ever. And sometimes we think of that as like a, a doxology, like, like Peter saying, and, and so let me just say, praise God. No, he is giving an example to those who are suffering, saying, in the midst of your suffering, you must still choose to elevate God's glory, to look to him as the one who has dominion over all things, including your suffering. So the question we ask today then is, does Jesus have dominion in our lives to where we can actually say that? Is he Lord of your life? Do you trust him with your past? Do you trust him with your present? Do you trust him with your future? If you don't, without Jesus, your life is void. There's a chasm that can't be filled by anything else and we'll do everything we can to chase it down and to fill that void and we'll cope and we'll try, to, we'll try to adapt and overcome and all the, all the wonderful self-help quotes that we can eat on off of our social media feeds. But at the end of the day, those have a limit. They're good for about a second. Without Jesus ruling and reigning with dominion in your life, you will run to the end of yourself again. And there you will find yourself weak and unable again. We need him ruling and reigning in our lives. We need his authority his protection, his covering. So here we are. Jesus, spread your wings over us. Jesus, our Redeemer, paid the price for you. This is why we give him dominion in our lives. This entire book of Ruth is a portrait of this good news playing out in our lives. The gospel is the answer to your sorrow. The gospel is the answer to your desperation. It's the answer to your brokenness. And it is the answer to your sin. His redemption of your life, of your soul, of your past, of your present, of your future. Can I just tell you something? His redemption was not inexpensive. It was not cheap. It came at the greatest price. His own life, the God of glory, the King of glory, stepped off his throne and gave himself a ransom for you. And so as we think about the good news, this is not a call to cheap grace. Awesome, God loves me. I can keep living the same way I've been living. I can keep, keep looking at the world. I can keep one foot in Moab. I can do all those things and, and God's, gonna, God's gonna redeem me. That's not what this is about. Yes, God is merciful. But at the end of the day, he's calling us out of Moab. He's calling us back to Bethlehem. He's calling us back to come under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty and to find His Lordship and His authority as our strength, as our covering. He's calling us to repent and to turn to Him in faith and trust. And as you come to His feet, as you come to the feet of Jesus, I promise you, my friends, every time I come to the feet of Jesus, I find a living hope because that's who he is. We're in the midst of so many things in our lives and we wrestle and all we want is to be able to look forward with hope. Isn't that all we want? Don't you just want hope in the midst of those hard moments? Jesus literally is the hope, the, the assurance of yes, maybe things that seem unseen, but still a confidence in that thing that he's done and a rest and a trust, a faith that says, I 
will not only come under your shelter, Jesus, but I will trust you and I will worship you even in my suffering.